Jeremiah chapter 2 tonight, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, you'll be a little bit lost without a Bible tonight. So men are coming up the aisles with Bibles, and you wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage tonight. That way the Word of God can go in the ear gate and the eye gate at the same time, have double the effect. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you tonight. We come from uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 1, which uh, contains the you know, commissioning of Jeremiah into a uh, 40 to 45-year uh, ministry as a prophet to the Lord. He is a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, decades earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel had already gone into bondage because of their sin and their idolatry to the Assyrians. Now the southern kingdom of Judah is in the same danger of uh, going into captivity, being defeated and displaced from the land by a rising empire known as the Babylonian Empire for the same reasons that their uh, neighbors, their brethren to the north went into captivity because of their, uh, just their determination to uh, live in sin and wickedness and idolatry and uh, rebellion against the Lord. And so uh, the judgment is coming, and God is warning them of that judgment through Jeremiah. In chapters 2 through 13 of Jeremiah, they record uh, the prophecies that Jeremiah prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was the one who was the king when Jeremiah was called into his prophetic ministry. It would cover, his ministry would cover the reign of uh, five uh, separate kings, but all of these prophecies are very, done very early in his ministry and during the reign of Josiah. The chapters that we're looking at tonight, chapters 2 through 6, though we'll only get through a couple of chapters, Lord willing, tonight, in these two chapters, the Lord is uh, laying out the sins of the southern kingdom uh, of Judah, the sins of the nation, and he is bringing them to the forefront so that they will recognize them in order to uh, repent from them. Uh, the theme of Jeremiah's prophecies in these five chapters can really be summed up in three words. And the first word is the word remember, the second word is to realize, and the third word is to repent. All of these prophecies are given with the idea of trying to get Judah to remember the relationship that they once had with God and they no longer have with him uh, at the time. The second word, realize, is to realize that they don't have the intimacy of relationship, the life, uh, the living relationship that they once had with God, that that would dawn on them. That's what backsliding is. It is to move back in that personal relationship with God. And then third, that they would repent of their sin and return to that relationship. It's very similar for some of you. You're already thinking about Jesus' letter to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation where he communicated much the same thing to them. They weren't in quite as dire a condition uh, in terms of sin 
as uh, Judah was at this time of the ministry of Jeremiah, but they had left their first love. They were drifting in their relationship with God. That first love was cooling down, and so Jesus gave them the threefold instruction to remember uh, the relationship they once had with God, to repent and go back to that relationship, and then third, to return to their first works, to remember, to repent, and then to return. Jesus spoke to the church at Ephesus, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's the espousal, going together, the early years of a relationship and uh, uh, very, very sweet season in a relationship. And it should continue through the relationship, but uh, it, it is a sweet time, that first love. And he said, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do your first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus, and he does not say to them, and this is very significant, he does not say to them, you have lost your first love. Our hearts would sink if we were in a, uh, a backslidden state tonight, if God said, you have lost your first love. Because when you lose something, you don't know where to find it. When you lose your keys, you don't know where you've lost your keys. So he doesn't say you've lost your first love. He said you left your first love. In other words, there's a point in time, the church of Ephesus and the individuals in it, where they decided to leave their relationship with God here and then move away from it, the intimacy of it, and into other things. And they knew right where they had left it. And so God says, remember what we used to have, repent, go back to do the first works, go back and do uh, between you and I what was going on in the relationship between you and I when the relationship was what I wanted it to be and when it was sweet and it was beautiful. And if you go back and do those first works, giving the Word of God the same place in your life that it once had, the Word of God, Christian fellowship, and so forth, you'll find that that relationship is right where you left it. Now, this may be just like me droning on to some people, except if a person is in a backslidden state. And to realize in all of these chapters, God is going to light a fire under these people. This is really, this is really amazing stuff that he's going to speak to them very, very direct. But in all of it, behind all of it, is the desire that they would remember the relationship they once had with God, repent of the sin that has pulled them away from that relationship, and return again to the first works and find that relationship right where they left it. It's a wonderful message of hope, and despite the severity of the language with which God is used and the message that he's going to use here, and he means every word he's saying, but Behind all of it is a desire to wake the nation up to the privilege of repentance and the privilege of returning uh, to him. And so um, in chapter uh, 2, we begin the first kind of formal uh, prophecy of, uh, of Jeremiah where he, God brings his charges and his complaints against uh, Jerusalem. And so, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, uh, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. And, and then here is this word, remember, 
I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. Again, that's that going together love. When we meet someone, we're goo-goo-eyed, we're head over heels, we write their name all over our books or jeans or whatever it is in the current uh, culture, you know. Everything's like still 1960s and 70s for me, excuse me. Um, But there's that beautiful period in there. Again, it should never cease. There should just be the continuation of growing in depth in a relationship. But he said, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. And when God says, I remember here, God likens his relationship with Judah uh, to a marriage that has gone sour, a marriage that has gone uh, bad and is headed for divorce. What a terrible thing for God to be able to say, have to say to anyone that He has paid the price that He has paid in order to save us, to be, have to say, I remember when you used to love me. How awful is that? How eye-opening is that? I think that oftentimes, I won't say always, but I wouldn't be surprised if we drift in and out of it a little bit, each and every one of us, in our relationship with the Lord. To tend to think about supremely, and it comes to us most easily, what our our relationship with God means to us. And what we more easily forget is what this relationship means means to God and how important it is to Him. I mean, we could hardly believe that we could be important to Him or our relationship with Him could be important to Him, but it is. And you think about it in terms of a relationship. You think about it in terms of marriage. I have heard that the single most painful event that can occur in a life is to experience a divorce. And that's what God is in the middle of with the children of Judah. I've never been divorced. I've experienced a lot of pain in my life, but I have not experienced that pain. But I have seen it up close. I remember the first time I saw it, really up close as a young adult, saw how destructive it was, not only to the man and to the woman, but into the children and far beyond that. And I thought to myself, no wonder why God says, I hate divorce. And so here you have God in in the middle of a divorce. His people are divorcing Him. He is the spouse, or so to speak, in the relationship that does not want the divorce, and He is being divorced. I don't know that there is probably a greater betrayal in all of life than the betrayal of the divorce of one person against another who does not want the divorce because it's such a violation of intimacy. The marriage relationship is an incredibly intimate relationship, and with intimacy comes vulnerability. And a marriage relationship is not only very intimate on a physical level, but it is very intimate on a mental level, an intellectual level. All of those hours spent talking to her or to him about our dreams, what we think about things, feeling safe to say what somebody might think is stupid or crazy, but knowing they'll listen to us and they'll never hurt us with it, or all, 
the uh, betrayal of intimacy in terms of emotional and what we invest, what we say about what we feel to another person, how we invest love into that person. And then there's even a spiritual aspect of it. And look at the investment that God makes in His relationship to us in terms of intimacy, and as a result of it, making Himself vulnerable in the relationship. Look at the access that He has given us in terms of how much time is spent in prayer, talking with Him, each and every day in the relationship. And not us just saying things to Him, but Him talking to us and Him revealing His heart to us, revealing His will to us. All of this is astonishing expression of intimacy and vulnerability. God is heavily invested in the relationship that He has made available to us. And so we can, without understanding that, as Christians, just tend to become willy-nilly about the relationship that we can drop it or pick it up, walk away, divorce him, come back two years later, or whatever it might be, and he's just a big guy, he's a man enough to be able to handle it, and it doesn't bother him, and it never enters into our mind that it hurts his heart. There's two people heavily invested in this relationship. And when we understand that about the relationship and what God has done to develop and nurture that depth of a relationship, in our life, and the more He's done, the more He's revealed, the more faithful He's been, then the greater the betrayal that occurs in a backslide or a turning away from Him. And I don't say all of that to make anyone feel, you know, condemned over, you know, what we have or haven't done in a relationship with God, but it is an important safeguard to understand so that we don't view just turning on and off our relationship with God, backsliding, coming back, backsliding, coming back, backsliding, coming back, as if there isn't, this isn't something serious that we're engaged in and uh, doing something serious to God. God. Why would God write this in chapter 2 except that He cares about the relationship? Why wouldn't He? As we quoted, you know, uh, last Sunday, Simon and Garfunkel, I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. If there was no investment of God in the relationship, it would just be enough of all of you flame on, and he just torched the whole place. But he goes on and on and on because of his investment in the relationship and to make them know that what they are doing is not only sinning against His sovereignty, His almightiness, who He is, but it is a sin against His heart. It is a sin on every kind of level. I remember you. I remember when we were just going together. I remember when we got introduced. I remember when this whole relationship began. I remember the kindness of your youth. He's talking about the early days of their relationship with one another, their marriage, so uh, to speak. And she was all kindness uh, to him. The love of the betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. And here is God calling Abraham now to leave where it is that he lives, to then come to a land that he doesn't even know where it is, but ultimately he discovers it to be the land of Israel, the promised land. 
And Abraham was happy to leave where he left in order to then come to this promised land. And it's kind of that deal that occurs in a, in a marriage where here you are, you're married, you're newly married, and um, you uh, dirt poor, uh, you're just trying to put things together and pay the rent and uh, pay the car insurance and keep the two cars running and so forth, and you don't even have two quarters to rub together, but you got yourselves. You got one another. And when you still got that person that went through those years or those days in your life, that's a special season in life. And it's the kind of thing that sometimes you look back and when you're younger and you're that season, everything is so hard and you look at people who are 30, 40, 50 years maybe further on in their relationship and it looks like it's so much easier, so much better. They've got um, you know, maybe more margins materially in their life. But what you don't realize is that, yes, they are in a different place in life, but they look back longingly on the years that you are in the middle of. When this woman came to love me or this man came to love me when I had nothing to offer them but my little old self. And I'll tell you, it means something. And God was speaking to them in that way. You came with me in the early on when it didn't look like this. You didn't know what it was going to turn into. You're just getting to know me as God, Abraham, and the nation that would come out of his loins. And Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase, and all that devour him will, uh, all that devour him will offend. Uh, disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. And so the Lord uh, spoke about the time when he was Israel's delight. He was the glory. Uh, this was the, he was the, you know, the pinnacle in terms of, of, uh, their life, and then how he became their protector as well, bringing disaster on anyone that would come uh, against them. And so this beautiful image here where he's talking about the pain of this impending divorce that is going on here and, and, and how it's occurring uh, despite uh, this early beauty of uh, the relationship. Our relationship with God, and one of the things that this teaches us so that we never find ourselves in this kind of a place, our relationship with God is one that ought to always be growing in intimacy. It, every marriage ought to be growing in that way. And then our relationship with God should be the same way. It should never, ever be getting, growing cold, never, ever uh, growing distant. There should always be growth in a relationship with God. Otherwise, we're going to move into the direction here that, uh, that Judah did. There's the old saying, um, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? Well, you know, that's kind of a little bit, um, uh, well, you fill in the blank in your mind. You know, it certainly can be a guilt got you, and it can even be a little bit corny, but it's absolutely true. Well, we sang tonight, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. It never, ever does. Every single one of us have the relationship with God tonight that we want. James wrote and he said, if we draw nigh to God, he will always draw nigh 
to us. And so as we sit here in the privacy of our own heart and the work of the Holy Spirit, if I don't have the relationship with God that I desire to have or that I once had, it's just a prayer away. It's a repenting of my current priorities, turning back to God, and then finding that intimacy of relationship right where uh, I left it. And so here is this, uh, it is always a disregard for the relationship, a, um, a neglect is maybe even a better word of the relationship that then begins this path now toward the divorce, toward their apostasy, toward the judgment. And so if we sit here tonight and in the privacy of my own heart, I am neglecting my relationship with God. Yeah, I had a relationship with God that was like gangbusters compared to the one that I have now. Hey, then tonight's the night to turn from that and go back to uh, what it once was because otherwise it just continues to progress until it becomes uh, a significant problem as Judah was going to find out. And then the Lord... Uh, speaks to them here in verse 4, hear the word of the Lord, house of Jacob, and all of the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, and notice this, what injustice have your fathers found in me? And so here is God speaking now as a husband who's been left by his wife, and he is asking the question of Judah, what injustice did you find in me as a cause for leaving me? And of course, he was, had been utterly faithful to them, uh, that they have gone far from me and have followed idols and have become idolaters. God never broke a single promise to them. No one ever leaves God because of an injustice that he has done in our lives. So he's wanting to know what are the grounds for uh, divorce. And then he said, neither did they say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land uh, of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one had dwelt. He talks about his faithfulness to them in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In other words, God says, if anybody had any grounds to leave anybody in this relationship, talking to Judah, he says, I've got the grounds. I mean, that whole, you know, uh, thing with a golden calf and, the, and then turning away as we're ready to go into the promised land and not believing and wandering in the wilderness. Hey, I was out in that wilderness for 40 years just like you guys were, but I never left you. You sinned, you failed, you stubbed your toe, you skinned your knee over and over again. I never, ever left you. And, and he didn't. He had been faithful to them. And I'll tell you, I can't speak for you. Yes, I can speak for you. He's always been faithful to us in the relationship. He never gives anyone a cause for abandoning him in this way. And not only did I take care of you in the wilderness, I brought you into a bountiful country, the promised uh, land. He had blessed them, provided for them to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land and you made my heritage an abomination. And 
so they entered into the land, and then they got fat and sassy. They had uh, lots of food, and the land was a land of milk and honey, like God said. And then all of the blessings of God now became a competition in their hearts and in their minds to their relationship with God. How hard is it to be God to keep that balance perfect in our life? where he wants to bless us. Sometimes, oh, God, I want, I do, Lord, I want this so, oh, man, you know, and then I don't get it. And I don't doubt that sometimes it, it would be the thing where that thing would become such a temptation to you, whether it's a position or whatever it might be, uh, or a possession or something, to where I, I would take and that would begin to become a competition uh, for God in my relationship with God. So he's going to bless, and he's going to bless, and he's going to keep his promises. And the thing that we have to be careful of as Christians is he is a blessing God, and he loves to bless his children. That's just the way that he is. But he wants to bless us, but we've got to keep our heads screwed on straight and to realize one of the greatest threats to our intimacy of our relationship with God is the things that he blesses us with if we get that turned around in our lives and to realize, no, I'm not going to now start to worship these things and make them the priority in my life rather than the relationship with God. The hardest thing that God's people ever deal with in the Scriptures is prosperity. Prosperity. Every single time in the Old Testament, they go into a season of prosperity, and that becomes a great competition in their hearts and their relationship with God. Nothing wrong with a season of prosperity within our life or a lifetime of prosperity, but to realize the danger that it represents. Not everyone handles it well. Judah didn't handle it well, and it's a warning to us. The Lord holds three groups within Judah especially um, responsible for uh, the spiritual condition of the land uh, of Judah. He uh, denounces here and, and uh, rebukes the priests, he says, uh, did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. So here you've got priests that uh, don't even know God. The rulers also transgressed against me, and prophets prophesied by uh, Baal, and walked after things that do not uh, profit. And so uh, here's these three classes of people that he, he uh, denounces by name. It reminds us of the fact that, uh, as it declares in the New Testament, Paul writing to Timothy, be not many masters because you will face, or James, uh, rather, be not many masters or teachers uh, that because you will receive the stricter judgment. And he notices that the whole nation is apostate and backslidden, but he notices them in particular, and, and he denounces them. The greater the privilege in, in terms of influence, uh, spiritual influence in the body of Christ and among God's people, the greater God holds us uh, responsible. So here, the, what the Lord is speaking to them is that the entire fault for this estrangement, the entire fault for this separation, this divorce, lies 100% solely with them. And it is always 
the case. There is never a good reason to backslide or to walk away from God, and he never gives us a reason to do that. And then in verse 9, God begins to make charges uh, against Judah. It's almost as if now they're in divorce court here, and, uh, and so he testifies against her, so to speak, in a, in a court of law. And he said, therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord. You left me for whatever your reasons were. None of them have any basis in reality. I will bring the reality of the charges that I'll bring against you, Judah, says the Lord. And against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass from the coasts of Cyprus, and in the ancient world when you were in Israel, Cyprus was to the west, and beyond Cyprus was like, that was like the way out there, you know. It's like uh, go west and keep going west, and then send to Kedar and uh, consider diligently. Kedar is referring to nomadic tribes living in that region out uh, between the border of the great uh, desert and Israel itself. And so, uh, God is saying, look all around the world. Look all the way to the west. Look all the way to the east. Look in every direction. And then here's the question he poses, and see if there has been such a thing, has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory, speaking of himself, for what does not profit. And so he tells them, go east, uh, or west, go east, investigate to see anywhere in the world if you ever see any nation leaves, leave its gods, even when its gods are not gods. They're nothing. They're just idols. They're just ideas in people's minds. They have no basis in reality at all. And he's talking to the children of Judah. Good message for today as well, and he's talking about how fiercely in the ancient world, but in the world we live in today, how fiercely pagans remain true to their false gods, and yet uh, how fickle God's people can be in their relationship with God. You ever try to convert a Mormon? You ever try to convert a Jehovah Witness? You talk about a fierce adherence to something that is false. You almost never run into a backslidden Jehovah Witness or Mormon. The only way they come out is by becoming a Christian just about. How fiercely they hold to a lie. And yet most of us in this room could name five people, five Christians off the top of our heads who are backslidden condition tonight. And the, so the same thing plagues us, even yet today. And the observation is just as true. It's crazy. It's irrational. Of course, there's a spiritual warfare that's involved in all of it. But he's just talking about to them, how about a little bit of loyalty? I'll just take even the loyalty that the pagans show in their own flesh toward idols from Judah at this point. They weren't even giving him that. But my people have changed their glory, and God was their glory, and God is our glory. He is what makes our lives glorious. Everything that is glorious in our life has come from him. 
and from, but my people have changed their glory, speaking of God, uh, for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. And so, here God does something very interesting. He'll do it repeatedly through the book. Uh, he calls on the heavens, and, uh, he, uh, he, and He calls upon the earth elsewhere, but He calls upon the heavens here to be astonished and to be horribly afraid. In other words, my people in Judah are not listening to me. I can't get a witness. Can you get a witness? I can't get a witness out of Judah because nobody's listening to what I have to say. So I'll get a witness out of my creation. He starts to talk to the creation uh, about all of this as a witness to uh, the condition of his people and to be shocked, to be horrified, to be stunned at the evil of what they've done uh, to God Almighty uh, himself. And he said, for my people have committed two evils. Number one, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And number two, they have hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So those were the two evils, having forsaken uh, God. And God describes himself as a fountain of living water. Now, sometimes people, when they've never been to Israel before, they think the whole thing is a desert. What are you going to go there? It's just rocks from one end to the other. Not at all. There are redwood forests in the north. There is an ocean on the western border. There is a great valley that runs uh, right along the border of Israel in Jordan, and there is a desert to the south. It is a miniature of the state of California. It is a very beautiful country because we do happen to live in the most beautiful state in the United States. My humble opinion but I've seen some stuff. It's amazing where you can go and what you can see on a tank of gas. And right now in my Honda, a tank of gas is about 30 bucks. So you can go a long ways, about 500 miles on it. So uh, the, the, just the beauty, uh, uh, the beauty of it. But in, the, in the Israel, water is a, the most precious commodity, the most valuable thing. Living water always speaks of running water. It speaks of a stream. It speaks of a spring that is coming up out of the ground. It's water that isn't in a pond. It's not in a lake. It's not stagnant. You don't get better water than living water. It's the freshest kind of water that you can get. And that's what he likened himself to them. In Israel, you would never walk away from a stream of living water. You wouldn't walk away from a spring on your property or property that had a spring or had a river or a stream running through it. And you would never leave it for a piece of land that had a cistern and especially a broken cistern on the land. Uh, he talks about here having hewn themselves cistern. A cistern is essentially uh, it, it's just this thing they would carve out of the stones, and there is plenty of rock for doing this, especially in the more arid regions of Israel, and in order to provide a water supply for you, your farm, your land, your city, they would hand carve out 
um, with chisels out of the stone these cisterns that would be like these caves that would have kind of limited exposure to the outside except for water from rain to be poured into it and so forth. And if you couldn't have uh, running water, uh, a spring or a, a, a stream, then this was the next best thing. But you'd never trade land equally uh, on the basis of that. And he likens their leaving him to leaving a spring in this area of the world and not only trading God in for a cistern, but a cistern that can hold no water. One of the problems with cisterns in the Middle East is the Middle East is earthquake territory. And you can spend decades carving out a cistern and one little earthquake, you got a crack in that thing and it's gone. It is useless overnight or can just develop a crack by the earth settling. And so nobody in their right mind would ever forsake a fountain of living water for a cistern, and especially one that cannot hold no, any water. And yet that's exactly what they had done uh, spiritually in, in this, uh, what they had left God for. It's a very, very powerful image. He's just saying, you're numbskulls. You're boneheads. You're stupid. I mean, stupido if you're, t- I don't know what kind of... But they're getting the point, believe me, as they're reading it. And then he uh, speaks to them of the consequences, and there are always consequences of walking away from God. And he said, is Israel, and now he stops talking about, uh, he he starts talking to Judah about Israel, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, which has already gone uh, into uh, captivity some uh, years earlier. And so he brings them into discussion. Is Israel a servant? Uh, Is he a home-born slave? He's saying, you're following the same sins that uh, Israel did, and where is Israel today? They are in captivity in Assyria. Are they a slave? Yes, they're a slave. Why is he uh, plundered? The consequence of Israel's sin, the same path that Judah is on, resulted in being plundered. This was what was going to come to Judah. The young lions roared at him and growled at him. Israel ended up destroyed because of her sin and then made his land waste. His cities were burned without inhabitant, and the people of Noph and Taphanes have broken the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourself? and that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way. And so he is just speaking to them and declaring to them that the forsaking of him always leads to slavery and plunder and oppression and destruction, and it leads to uh, bondage. And, and then he declares powerfully in verse 17 that uh, Israel had brought this upon themselves, and Judah was about to do the same things. And so, have you not brought this on yourself? Are you not in the condition that you're in, not because of me, but because of you, in that you've forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way? I like the fact that when Gail Irwin talks about waking up uh, in the morning and looking in the mirror first thing, and uh, he quotes the old comic. I don't know if anybody's even running this comic in the newspapers anymore, um, uh, the Pogo comic, but uh, it, where, you know, the man looks in the mirror and he realizes, I am looking at the enemy. 
I am looking at the enemy. And I am my own worst enemy in my relationship with God. The world and, and the devil could never do anything in my life to pull me away from God if it did not gain uh, somehow the sympathy and the cooperation of my flesh. And it's a healthy thing uh, to realize uh, that, uh, when he, that, that it is ourselves in those decisions that bring us into that place. And so to be very distrustful uh, of ourselves and uh, keep us by the Spirit of God on a short leash. And now why take the road to Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor or take the road to Assyria to drink the, river, uh, the waters of the river? Again, speaking of uh, of. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel ultimately going into bondage to Assyria. All of this, the consequences of leaving God, ultimately it, it ends up in bondage. And then one of these great classic verses in the book of Nehemiah, verse 19, for your own wickedness will correct you and your backsliding will rebuke you. And backsliding does bring its own correction. One of the great things that happens when we become a Christian is the Holy Spirit comes into our life. You can't be a Christian without that happening. But when the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we've truly been born again, we will never be satisfied with the world ever again. That booze will never taste as good as it once tasted. The dregs will never get a person as high uh, you know, the stealing or the uh, sexual immorality or whatever it might be. There will, there will never be the rush that it once had in our life. God spoils us, and it's a wonderful thing that He does. He spoils us forever from ever being able to return to the world and enjoy our sins the way that we once did. And then He is the hound of heaven. He hunts us down out there if we're far from Him and uh, drawing us back to Him. But the consequences of our own backsliding, when I know, you know, when I, my, you know, I've got, I mean, all of us have backslidden at least a little bit in our lives, so we understand it on some level. The Bible talks about the backslider and heart will be uh, filled with all of his ways. You don't have to uh, you know, do something crazy in order to be obviously backslidden. The backsliding always starts um, uh, within, within the heart. And, uh, and so the backslidings, ultimately, they end up, uh, they end up uh, rebuking you. And I forgot my thoughts, so I'm going <laughs> to stop. This is taking me back to my sermon that I talked about uh, on First Peter. So we'll let it go. But it is that, that beautiful thing where uh, it, it, it ends up correcting us. Uh, God has wonderfully spoiled us from ever returning to our sin and successfully staying there. Again, as, as my thought comes back to me, but even when that occurs, maybe even a relatively short time within, within our hearts, uh, then I, I lost it again. All right, it must not be, it must not be uh, something that uh, it's either an amazing thought or I've just wasted two and a half minutes of your time. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and a bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. Important to realize that to do this to God, to do this to God, and again, in a Christian culture in the United States of America, in Western culture, 
many people think nothing of doing this. I'm not putting you down if you've been backslidden. I'm just trying to raise the standard in my own heart and in your heart as well that this is not an option. This is not on the table. Is a choice that we are free to make because it is an evil and a bitter thing. It is evil uh, to do to God, and it is a bitter experience that we are uh, entering ourselves into. And the fear of the Lord, uh, he says, is not in you, uh, says the Lord of hosts. And always at the core of all of this is an absence of uh, the fear of the Lord. And that's what they were lacking. There was no reverence of God. I fear him. I love him with all my heart. I'm not afraid he's going to like, you know, snuff me if I make a mistake or something like that or whatever. But I fear him. And, and it's somehow this goofy, needed combination of both things that we've got to have in our life where there's that vulnerability, there's that intimacy. I don't shudder in his presence. I love his presence. I love the throne of grace that's been opened up to me. I know I'm always going to receive grace and mercy in my time of need, but I know better than to make him, uh, to force him to, be cho to choose between my disobedience to his word and being true uh, to his commandments. And I never want to put myself in that place. So somehow between the two kind of bumper cars on either side, it keeps me at least in a very healthy place in my relationship with him. But the importance of having a fear of God uh, in our lives and in our relationship uh, with him uh, as, as well. And the, the cure for their, their backsliding would have been uh, an increase in the fear of the Lord. They simply did not possess it at all. For of old I have broken your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not uh, transgress. When on every high hill, under every green tree, you lay down playing the harlot. So he declares them to be spiritual uh, uh, harlots here, and uh, spiritual, uh, spiritual adultery here was, uh, had, had turned them uh, from uh, being something noble, as he's going to get to in just a moment here, into something, a degenerate people. And so they say, I will not transgress. And God says, anywhere you want to look around the land, uh, there is the spiritual harlotry that is going on before my eyes. Terrible thing to speak that about my wife. My wife has become a harlot. She's become a whore, a prostitute. And she does it openly before my eyes. And this is what the nation of Israel was doing to uh, God. And, they, and, of course, in worshiping the ancient deities, there was uh, usually significant sexual immorality on a physical level, quite apart from the spiritual immorality that was involved in that. God said, yet I have planted you a noble vine. They had every, every chance at being spiritually excellent, a seed of the highest quality. How then have you turned before me into a degenerate plant, plant of an alien vine? For though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. And so God says the, the, the depth of the sin within the nation and within their individual hearts, he said it won't be washed away with soap. It won't even be washed away with lye. I don't know. I've, uh, uh, what was the name of that, 
soap that they used to, lava, right? Okay, they made it out of like lava and the whole thing and it'd take your first layer of skin off on uh, just any time you want to wash up uh, with that. And, and, but I've never washed up with lye, not interested in doing that. I think your skin drips off your body or something and, uh, in my understanding of it. But even soap or lye couldn't uh, wash away their sin or cleanse them. Why? Because their sin wasn't just a surface action. This was all the way down uh, in, into their heart. They needed their hearts to be cleansed. Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord. And that's why there's that wonderful talking about washing up, uh, that wonderful bar of soap that we're, is spoken of in uh, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that is to cleanse our heart as well. That's what they needed, and that's what God has offered us in the blood uh, of His Son. How can you say, I am not polluted? I have not gone after the Baals. See your way uh, in the valley. Uh, God is challenging them, saying, what are you talking about, my sin? What are you talking about me going after the Baals? And he said, see your way in the valley. Know what you have done. You are a swift dromedary uh, breaking loose in her ways. And so a dromedary is a one-humped camel. And uh, that'll be good for like double jeopardy. Maybe for some of you, if you ever end up uh, on the show, I had to look it up myself. So when you lose a one-hump camel that's broken away from its master, that's the image that's given here. And then he likens them to a wild donkey used to the wilderness that sniffs in the wind uh, in her uh, desire, in her time of mating. Who can uh, turn her away? All those who seek her will not uh, weary themselves in her month. They will find her. And so he describes the nation as being uh, indiscriminate spiritually as a donkey in heat. I mean, willing to take on all idols, all gods, defile themselves with anything, withhold your foot from uh, being unshod and your throat from thirst. In other words, if you don't turn around, that's what's coming. You're going to, have, uh, you're going to walk barefooted and, and, and experience a thirsty journey into bondage, but you said there is no hope. No, for I have loved aliens, and after them I will go. The, the determination that they had to continue in the sin. As the thief is ashamed when he is found out. Now, I don't know if thieves are ashamed anymore, but they used to be ashamed. And, uh, and so here you are, a person of prominence or a person of whatever. You're just somebody's family, and it used to be you didn't bring down your family's name. And uh, so here's a thief. He gets caught as a thief. There was shame associated with it when he's uh, found out. So is the house of Israel uh, ashamed. They and their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets, uh, the, the, the shame they should be feeling for their idolatry, saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, uh, you gave birth to me. So Mother Earth kind of uh, deal going on here and, uh, and worshiping these images that have been carved out of stone and carved out uh, of a tree, for they have turned their back to me and not their face. Think about that. That's how God looks at it in their idolatry. They have turned their back to me and not their face. You ever had anybody do that to you? Probably not, but you can imagine it. 
that here you are in some kind of a social situation. It's done openly to you, publicly. And a person refuses to turn around and give you their face. They deliberately put their back to you. What an insult, an intent to humiliate. Now, it's one thing to do it to me. It's really nothing for someone to do it to me. But it's another thing to do it to God. And that's how God felt about the sin of Judah in, uh, in uh, all of uh, this. But in the time of trouble, oh, in the time of trouble always comes in idolatry and in backsliding, they will say to God, arise and save us. But God will then say to them, but where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? It's terrible when you can make your own God because uh, anything you make is less than you, and when you're in trouble, you need someone that's more than you. And so uh, in, in that time, uh, what about these gods you've made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in the time of trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. The whole land is completely filled with idolatry and the associated uh, nonsense. And then God talks about the fact that he'd been forgotten by his people uh, many days without number. Why will you plead to me? Uh, you all have transgressed against me, says the Lord. In vain I have chastened uh, your children, and they receive no correction. The sword is devo has devoured your prophets like a uh, destroying lion. And so uh, they're apparently they're beginning to bear the consequences of their condition here, and they're beginning to ask God, why are you treating us in this way? And God is uh, saying, what are you talking to me about, you know, in, in, in all of this? Uh, I, it, it, this is all coming on your head because of what you're doing. Don't blame me. Oh, generation, see the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness uh, to Israel or a land of darkness? Why do my people say, we are lords and we will come no more to you, speaking of God, uh, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire, that is, her wedding dress? Yet my people have forgotten me, and then it, as if that couldn't be worse, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Now, you still have the same imagery going on here. You have a husband who has been abandoned by his wife, and she is now out there parting, and she is having the time of her life, and she has no consciousness of what this is doing to her husband at home when he receives the reports. And it's the, the imagery is, here is Judah involved in all of their idolatry, all of their wickedness. They're just like that woman that's gone out and, and doing this kind of kind of thing. They're having the time of their life, and they have no consciousness of what it is that they're doing to the heart of God. And when sometimes when a spouse does that, leaves, goes, party, hardy, all of that, not a single thought does she have of him or does he have of her. It's, it's awful, but it happens. And yet it's even worse when it happens to God, yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And God holds them responsible for it. It's an interesting imagery that he uses there 
about the fact that a virgin doesn't forget her ornaments or bride her uh, wedding gown. I've officiated a lot of weddings over the course of, you know, 32 years or so, and I have never, ever arrived to perform the ceremony and discovered that the bride had forgotten her dress. If she did, it'd be like, okay, she's a little dingy. You still want to marry her? You know? <laughs> yeah, I want to do it. Okay, you're a little dingy too. I think you're going to do just fine. No, they never forget their dress. We never forget what's important to us. God wasn't important to them anymore. Why do you beautify your way uh, to uh, uh, seek love? And therefore, you have also taught the wicked women your ways. And so God is talking about the level of sin that is now occurring within Judah. When he talks about you have taught the wicked women your ways, he's talking about sexual immorality being so rampant within Judah and within Jerusalem that uh, here these people could have taught the prostitutes a thing or two about their trade, the oldest profession. And again, so much sexual immorality involved within the idolatry. He said, also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search. I mean, I didn't have to look in the closet or look under a rug or something like that, but plainly uh, uh, on all these things. And so murder was going on. Uh, during a part of Judah's history at this time, Manasseh was a terrible king of the southern kingdom of Israel. Uh, children and others were just being uh, killed, offered as sacrifice to false gods. Prophets were being killed in the streets for speaking about God. Uh, and, and so murder was going on unaddressed within the land. And yet you say, because I am innocent, surely his anger shall uh, turn from me. And, uh, and so here's this self-deception that they, they, after being confronted with all of these things, they, they still have the idea that they're innocent. What? What? What are you talking about? And, and so self-deceived into thinking that they're okay, surely his, that is God's anger, shall turn from me. That's what they thought. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say, I have not sinned. It's an interesting thing. Their attitude was, in the midst of all of this sin, ah, he'll get over it. He'll get over it. But look at the culture that we live in, you know, how headlong it's running uh, into sin. I hope for changes in the coming few years. I hope for righteousness to be raised a little bit with the changes that have occurred. We'll see. Um, a revival is what we desperately need in the United States. But, um, you know, is, he, is there, you know, so often you talk about the Bible, you talk about, even as I'm doing here tonight, but you talk about the standard of God's righteousness, the standard concerning right and wrong, the standard concerning uh, sin in the culture increasingly, and even Christians just look at it and say, ah, oh, that's so old-fashioned. I mean, it, this is a new world. This is a new day. This is, we're smarter than we used to be, you know, 2,000, 2,500 years ago, 2,700 years, uh, years ago. God's just being too uptight about all of this stuff. He'll get over it. Uh, but he doesn't get over it. And then he said, why can't, do you gad about so much to change uh, your way? Also, you shall be ashamed of Egypt as you were ashamed of Assyria. Indeed, you will go forth 
uh, from him with your hands on your head, for the Lord has rejected your trusted allies, and you will not prosper by them. And so all of this, he says, is going to end in shame and bondage and in captivity, and that's what sin always does. Always the promise of setting us free, always the promise of being the answer, but it's always bondage, always bondage. By the way, did I always say, ever say to you that it always ends up in bondage? In case I haven't, it always ends up in slavery and in bondage. All sin has a hook. It's all intended to put us into bondage, not merely to put us into bondage. There's a demonic element to it, but to then pull us away from our relationship with God as a result. Now, some of you might be sitting here, and I am closing. Um, that, and you look at this and you say, how many chapters here in Jeremiah we're going to be there probably when the next president gets elected before we get through uh, this particular book? I will pick it up, but we are laying a foundation a little bit. You pray for me to pick it up, by the way, but I will pick it up, the, the pace a little bit. But uh, a lot of things are going to repeat, but as we hit them the first time, important to kind of paint this picture and uh, we won't every week, but to just realize and take a look at um, how serious this is viewed in heaven and how serious it's viewed by God. And if it's not viewed with the same sobriety in our heart and in our mind, walking with Him, obeying Him, uh, and so forth, then to allow the chapter that we've looked at tonight to raise the standard to where it needs to be. Because if I allow the standard to drop or to go into a free fall, the end of it will be no different for me or for you than it was for Judah. This chapter is not in the Bible. The book of Jeremiah isn't in the Bible as like sermon fodder to give people like me something to say for an hour on Sunday nights. It's truth and the importance of recognizing that it is truth, applying it to our own individual lives, and then uh, making whatever decisions we need to accordingly. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, this is strong medicine, and this is strong language, and very, very graphic and powerful, and we thank you for it, and we realize and see just how hard, line upon line, you are working to wake Judah up to the spiritual freefall that they're in, and that the consequences that would inevitably follow. And we pray, Lord, that in any way in our lives where there's willful disobedience or we have lowered the standard in our life and we haven't been judged for it yet and we have the attitude that so many do that God isn't taking that seriously anymore or you have to get over it or you're too uptight about sin, it's a new day and a new age. Lord, we pray that you would use this chapter to snap us out of that tonight and to remember from whence we've fallen, and then to repent and to return and do our first works and discover that espousal love, that beautiful relationship that we once had with you sitting right where we left it. And so wherever the shoe fits tonight, to whatever degree, Lord, 
we pray that that response would occur in each of our hearts. We thank you, thank you that you do not abandon us into our own self-deceptions and our own self-justifications, but you are willing to speak to us in this way. We bless you for your honesty. We bless you for the love that is behind that honesty. And we bless you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.